welcome to Posting Up, the Washington Post NBA podcast. I'm your host, Tim Bontemps, National NBA writer for the Washington Post. Coming today with a fun podcast from my good friend, Kevin Pelton from ESPN. Uh, Kevin just had his most recent projections come out for the upcoming NBA season, projected the wins for all 30 NBA teams. Had a fun conversation about that. Some of the teams that surprised him in terms of doing better or worse than he anticipated in the projections. Um, Kind of what it's like to actually put out these projections, have players uh, in the league react to them, uh, often angrily because they're usually unhappy with the projections of their own teams uh, when they do react to it, um, and kind of how he's gotten used to that. Uh, and just just some talk about the the offseason in general, what's been an interesting couple of months in the NBA, as well as the potential for um, the team to come back to Seattle, where Kevin is from and still lives, uh, and be a replacement for the Sonics, something that uh, the city has been waiting nine years now to happen, still hasn't happened yet, and it's unclear when it actually will. Should be a fun listen, I think, for you. It was a fun conversation for me. Um, hopefully you guys will enjoy it, and I don't want, without wasting any more time, let's get to my talk with my man, Kevin Pelton. All right, Kevin, uh, thanks for coming on in between uh, your many media stops, including uh, your debut on The Jump last week, which I was very excited about. Much appreciated. As uh, I, I know that the offseason has not really started for a lot of us. Uh, you, I think, write more than anyone on the internet uh, about the NBA, just in terms of uh, uh, not only quality, but sheer volume of work. Are you, are you almost at uh, a vacation yet, or are you still in the middle of assessing everything that's happened the last few weeks? Uh, I don't have anything exciting planned as far as vacations the rest of the summer, but uh, it, the the workload is definitely going to lighten in terms of what you'll see for me on ESPN.com. Last week was kind of the last big push, and then we kind of timed the projections and the offseason grades right before I was going to be on the jump, which allowed us to discuss those and uh, DeMarcus Cousins and DeMar DeRozan reacting to those win projections. Oh, I didn't see this. I didn't see them reacting. Okay, first of all, excellent product placement by you. Well done. Uh, and I, I didn't see what DeMarcus and, and DeMar said. So what, what, what's the story there? Yeah, there was the uh, comments of, I believe it was the Instagram post by ESPN NBA of the wind projections. And uh, DeMar DeRozan replied, F-O-H. And, <laughs> <laughs> and Cousins had a, a sleeping emoji. That's awesome. Now, for uh, for uh, for to fill people in, uh, in Kevin's win projections for all thirty teams, he had Toronto sixth uh, with forty three wins, and New Orleans ninth, and out of the playoffs with forty four uh, for Demar and Demarcus. Um, th- these projections have uh, become kind of a, a hot button issue in the summer. I mean, it's all anytime you're projecting out or making a prediction about things. Um, it always tends to lead to headlines and, and stories. Plus, it's an easy uh, thing for beat writers to do in August uh, if they're trying to fill stories for the day. Is to Oh, Kevin Pelton projected that the Knicks will win blank games or the Hornets will win blank games in whatever city they're in um, and, and write about it. Um, have you... I remember, I think, I feel like the first time this really became a big thing was a couple of years ago when you uh, projected, when when your system projected before the season that the Knicks were going to win 37 games and everyone in New York, uh, except for me when I was in New York at the time, uh, lost their minds and said there was no way that was going to be true and that it wound up being exactly true and that they did win 37 games. Have you you kind of noticed in recent years, uh, both as you've gained more prominence and as like people have seen that these projections... um, tend to be, you know, if not, obviously not perfect, but they have a, they're have they a pretty good leading indicator for where the league is going uh, coming into the season. Have you noticed people tending to take them more seriously or take you more seriously now that you've, you've had some high-profile hits like that? Uh, more seriously or more angrily? Well, I, I guess both is, is fair. <laughs> I mean, everything's angry on the internet except for you. So I, I you, as Kevin is about the nicest person there is, so... Uh, I don't, uh, I don't know if, I don't know if I'd say angrily is a, is a great indicator, but, uh, but yeah, what, what do you think of it? So, I, I mean, I think the first time they really got a lot of notice, uh, we were doing, I was previously at basketball prospectus before I started with ESPN and we were doing annually the pro basketball prospectus almanac, which was basically a, a, an extended season preview that included the, at that point, the Shaney projections that I was calculating. And they first really got noticed, uh, I think it was 2011-12, I guess, uh, yeah, I think it was the lockout season, 
when we had our no, I guess it would have been the season after the lockout when we had our projections in ESPN the magazine, even though right, uh, I, I still was that. not working. Yeah. At, at that point, I was just contributing occasional articles to ESPN Insider via basketball prospectus. And the Denver Nuggets were number one in the Western Conference in those projections. And that got a lot of notice, certainly, including Reggie Miller on a TNT broadcast oh, during the preseason. Right. The infamous rat about the uh, rant about the lab geek rats with <laughs> their pocket right. squares. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, it was so long ago. That's tremendous. Yeah. And that was the year to fill people in uh, that I believe the Nuggets won 57 games and yep. George Carl was coach of the year. Yeah, they were not number one in the Western Conference, but I think did just end up, just about end up matching the projection. Let me put it this way. Your projection was far closer to what happened than everyone else expected. That year. Yes. Because that was the year yeah. after the trade of Carmelo. So it's been I've been lucky, I think, with some of the high profile projections that they have turned out right. Because quite frankly, Shaney wasn't its track record overall was not very good, which is why I've moved to using ESPN's real plus minus to uh compile these projections at this point. I still have the the Shaney projections, but they're mostly I'm mostly using them for player projections and using RPM for the team projections. So yeah, then the next year was uh, my first year at ESPN after John Hollinger left and previously they had used Hollinger's projections in doing the season previews team by team. Then I took over that role uh, doing those in conjunction with Tom Haberstrow and Bradford Doolittle. And yeah, the Knicks won that year being the first year on ESPN being such an unexpected projection, even for me. Right, because that was the year after they won uh, 54, right? That was the year after they were good. And we're the number two seed in the Eastern Conference. So, right. yeah, to be below 500 was unthinkable for people. And I remember uh, uh, Carmelo Anthony ha- had the line, "The uh, sometimes computers have glitches. Yes, yes. This is glad in, in reply to that. And, look, to be honest, like – I was really lucky that they ended up, first off, exactly at 37 wins, which required them to win their last two games of the season. Right. But even in general, like, you know, some of the things I projected in terms of Carmelo Anthony's decline were not specifically right. And then other things, you know, happened in terms of them playing many more traditional lineups, much more, many more minutes for traditional lineups as opposed to the small ball lineups that had been so good for them the season before. That was kind of hard to foresee in a projection system for anyone. But, uh, uh, it, it ended up that was a it was a fun night when they won their 37th game and exactly nailed the projection. Well, and you and you've mentioned this um, a few times, but you know it ten, tends to be you know when when your projections come out, whether it's for for players or for teams, um, you know there there tend to be a, a, a lot of angry reactions, like the you know like that Reggie Miller line or the one with Carmelo about. Um, you know, maybe, you know, sometimes computers have glitches. I mean, which which are funny lines in the moment. But at the same time, like, I also know how much work you're putting into uh, trying to figure this stuff out. Um, and is there, uh, are you able to take any of those, uh, are you able to take any criticisms? Uh, like, obviously, I know that, um, you know, you know, you're just looking at the data and, and you know, and analyzing it. And this is what it, this is what it comes out to be. But uh, are you able to take all that stuff in stride? Uh, when, when people get that worked up about it as just kind of part of the way people react to things or, or is it something that has taken some getting used to that when you put out something like this, it's going to engender some, some pretty strong reactions from people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, first off, because of the fact that, look, you know, I've been thinking about this lately. It's not that in projections, you're trying to get things right. It's that, you know, you're going to be wrong and you're trying to be less wrong than everyone else. (laughs) Right. Right. Like if you say, hey, this projection is probably going to be wrong. Like, yeah, odds are you're right. Most (laughs) projections are going to be wrong because you don't know what's going to happen in terms of injuries or trades or all sorts of these variables that determine things. So the one thing I would say that bothers me is just the, the claims of bias. Like when people will say, oh, you know, you have the Clippers ahead of the Blazers because that's classic big market bias for L.A. Like, no, the, it's just a it's just a, an Excel program on my computer. It has no idea what the markets are. Yeah. Well, and and, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's obviously I mean, you know, that's that's uh, that, that's very silly. Um, now, I don't want you to like completely unveil how you you go about coming up with this stuff. Cause I know, I know that you won't, but one thing I wanted to ask going back to what you said before um, for people that don't know, uh, you, you know, your Shaney system kind of looks at uh, 
at, at, at individual players, like you, you mentioned. But why why do you think that that system uh, struggled to get a more reliable overall model um, to where you had to switch to the real plus minus uh, for ESPN's real plus minus as the basis of of these projections? I mean, I'm, I guess if you'd figured it out, you would you would you would just tweak it and use uh, that system still. But it, did you have any theories as to why that? that struggled to uh, to come up with the kind of projections you wanted? Yeah, so basically the Shaney, what Shaney was trying to do was come up with an, NBA, an entire NBA universe where every point a player scored had to be a point that another team gave up, basically, and, mm. and try to equalize all of those. And that, in hindsight, may have been bitey off more than was possible to chew. And, you know, I kept trying to tweak things a little bit here and there and, and finding things that, you know, maybe would improve the projection accuracy a little bit, but... Yeah, there were still wild outliers, and especially you know when teams change dramatically and, and you know the the rules change, uh, that's right. an issue for any projection system. But I think Shaney particularly tended to struggle with that. So it's interesting. The in, in terms of over unders, it was pretty good at predicting like the direction that the conventional wisdom was off. But when it was wrong, it was really wrong. And <laughs> RPM tends to minimize some of those big errors. And that's why, you know, I think most of the, the most successful projections that are out there now, and, and there's a variety of them that are tracked on the uh, APBR metrics message board for statistical analysis, you know, the, the most successful ones tend to be those built on RPM or box plus minus, which is a derivation of it. But RPM is even more successful generally than box plus minus, which is why uh, 538, their Carmelo projections, which are substantially similar, they ended up moving towards incorporating uh, RPM more heavily this year, whereas last year they had entirely used box plus minus. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I knew you would have some kind of an answer, so that uh, <laughs> that makes sense. Um and so, uh, you know, I, I, w- I was looking through again before we uh, before I before I got on the phone with you today, just at, at kind of the way um, the way the projections lined up. You know, just when you got done uh, initially and you looked at looked it over yourself, what were some of the things that, that maybe surprised you most about uh, the projections for this upcoming season? So much like DeMar DeRozan, Toronto being as low as they were was certainly a surprise to me. Um, Like I mentioned, I did run the Shaney projections, even though they're less reliable. And and Toronto in in those projections was significantly higher. In fact, third in the Eastern Conference behind Cleveland and Boston, which is where I think, you know, a lot of people are going to have them. It's going to be either them or Washington in that spot uh, as people are going through and making their projections for it. I think the Clippers being as competitive as they are in the middle of the Western Conference in a tier with Minnesota and Oklahoma City was a surprise to me. And then maybe the other direction, Philadelphia was a team that, that I expected to be much closer to 500 than they were in terms of the projections. I mean, they're they're one of the most difficult teams in the league to project, I'd say, because of the fact that they're so dependent on guys who are both, you know, inexperienced, uh, two of their better players, Markel Fultz and Ben Simmons, the last two number one picks, have never played a game in the NBA. And then also injury risks with Simmons and Joel Embiid and and even to a lesser extent, Fultz. Even Fultz has had some injuries here so far. Yeah, so... You know, if, if you figure that Joel Embiid is going to be able to play, you know, 2,000 minutes for them uh, on the like extreme optimism, and that's a totally different situation than if you think he's going to play 1,000 minutes for them next season. And, you know, the, that's, that's one of the more difficult aspects to model. And I kind of ended up splitting the difference where he's projected to play like 1,250 minutes. Yeah, no, that there, I mean, you know, that's where you know, one of those situations where it doesn't matter whether you're trying to do, uh, you're trying to look at Philadelphia from a statistical standpoint or just from a, an overall standpoint. Um, like you said, there are so many variables with the Sixers and specifically, you know, with, with Embiid even more than the other guys. You know, I mean, the guy played, the guy's played 700 total minutes in three years in the league. Um, you know, if, if he, like you said, if he can somehow triple that next season or come close to it, you know, they're probably going to make the playoffs. But the chances of him actually doing that, um, they, they just don't, they're just not that realistic. Um, so I, I think that's a pretty, um, I think it's a pretty wise split on your half. Let, let's look at those two teams you mentioned earlier, though, Toronto and the Clippers, because I, I, I was, I was, I guess, less surprised about um, where, where Toronto was in the Clippers personally. So what, 
Um, what do you think kind of contributed to to those two teams ending up where they were uh, in the projections, both of them uh, being six in their conferences, the, the Clippers with 49 wins and the, the Raptors with 43? So in Toronto's case, a lot of it is that Patrick Patterson is rated so well. Uh, one of their the guys they did lose this offseason to Oklahoma City. He's uh, projected as a plus 1.9 per 100 possessions by RPM, which is really terrific for a role player. And in fact, better than Serge Ibaka, who is a, projected as a plus 1.0 per 100 possessions. So, you know, I think most people look at it as, okay, we a full season of Ibaka in place of Patrick Patterson. That's going to be a win for the Raptors. Uh, the the RPM projections don't see it that way. And then also to a lesser extent, CJ miles for Damari Carroll, Carroll, the perception I think is that, you know, he is almost dead salary at this point going to Brooklyn with a first round pick and a second round pick in that trade. The, those teams pulled off this summer uh, to help the Raptors avoid the luxury tax. And then they signed CJ miles as a replacement, but Carroll again actually projects better by RPM than CJ miles does. Yeah, which I mean, if that if, if that plays out that way, it's definitely not going to look great for Toronto. Like you said, given the given the price it took to get off of Carroll's money, um, and, and the fact that they they then gave up Corey Joseph to get uh, Miles, it really turns into Carroll Mile or Carroll Joseph and two picks for CJ Miles. So if that doesn't work out, um, that that's a pretty big negative. I I also just wonder with them too. I mean, you look at their team and. At some point, you kind of have to. I mean, I assume your model has probably started to build in some decline for Kyle Lowry at this point, too, right? I mean, given he, I know he just signed a new contract this summer, but he's into his early 30s and had some injury history. I would think that um, at some point he's got to start to to slide back a little bit, right? Yeah, definitely. His projection is for a plus 4.1 RPM, which is still very good, certainly all-star caliber, but uh, not quite as elite as it has been the last couple seasons where he was among the league's leaders in RPM. Right. That's what I figured. And I, I assume with the Clippers, the, 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 main, the main thing there was just that even though they lost Chris Paul, um, the fact that they got a, a lot of depth back for him, uh, ironically, you know, getting Danilo Gallinari is a kind of a similar situation to, um, even though I know it's not quite an analogous comparison, but um, is a little similar to that, to that Denver team a few years ago where they just were, because they have a bunch of pretty good players, obviously. And then, you know, Blake Griffin, uh, who has the potential to be a much higher level player if he's healthy. Um, does that kind of lift them up a little bit higher than you might've initially guessed? It does, yeah. I mean, they have seven guys who are projected as uh, above-average players by RPM. You know, three guys they got in the uh, in the Chris Paul trade, Beverly Lou Williams, and then Montrez Harrell coming off the bench, and, and then also Teodosic, who they added. And you know, Gallinari has a pretty solid plus two point projection. Uh, the other aspect with the Clippers is much like the Sixers; they're a team that you know what they do is going to depend a lot on how how healthy they stay. So Gallinari at this point is projected for seventy games. Blake Griffin, 68. I haven't yet penalized him at all for the idea that he might miss some games at the start of the season dating back to that injury he suffered uh, to his planter plate that ended his playoffs. If it becomes clear that he is going to be delayed in starting the season, then that is going to drop his games played and hurt their projection. Yeah, I was going to actually I was actually going to ask you about that. How did you um, how did you settle on those two numbers for those guys? Because I, I was I was looking back and I feel like. I feel like that that seemed a little optimistic for both of them, given what they've uh, given what they've played recently in terms of games played. Right. Yeah. And that's based on a, that. Well, the playing time in terms of minutes per game is my subjective projection of it. Yeah, I, was talking about more, I was talking about more total games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just to explain that. my So the playing time is my own estimate, but the games played. Then there's like, you know, one time I think I put my finger on the scale because the projection just looked too far off. Uh, it's it's based on a formula of games missed you've played over the last three seasons and how historically, you know, you've kind of best used those numbers to project how many guys games guys are going to play in the following season. So, you know, you tend to, it tends to be the harshest punishment for guys who do miss games several years in a row, which Griffin and Gallinari have. But still, very few players are projected with fewer games than that. It's only, you know, basically Embiid. Right. No, that that uh, that that makes a lot of sense. And I, I mean, the other thing, I, I just, I have a lot of questions about the Clippers. I mean, I, I think, you know, I, I can understand why they moved on from Chris Paul. Um, I personally would have moved on from Blake too, probably, and just completely rebooted. Um, I, I get why they didn't to a degree, but. Uh, what it, do you do? You see, just from a basketball standpoint, I, I don't really like the fit of Gallinari next to 
Blake and DeAndre. I, I just don't – I feel like at this point Gallinari should be playing power forward as a stretch four. Um, it just doesn't I, – I just I just wonder if that whole mix in Los Angeles, especially now with the stuff about Doc Rivers recently, if, if you know, if, if Blake can't come back right at the start of the season, which seems like a possibility, and I, I just wonder if things kind of – if they end up kind of being, you know, a team that, that ends up being a lot worse than people would think just from looking at the names on their roster given the amount of volatility that's there. There, there's certainly disaster potential, I would say, with them. That's a, a Danny LaRue phrase uh, from one of our, <laughs> our mutual friends. Uh, I, I think, you know, it, offensively, they've got enough shooting to make that work in terms of Gallo playing the three. I think the question is more defensively, if he's still quick enough to chase around those guys, uh, you know, since obviously Blake Griffin isn't going to be doing that. And, and then I guess the, the one upside of, you know, having put those guys be injury risks is maybe you're not actually going to have that many minutes with both of them out there. Right. They, I would say this would be a good opportunity for Doc Rivers to start staggering his players. But then that's been true for several years running. Yes. Well, that that is that is very true. And it'll be interesting to see if um, if, if any of that stuff starts to change. Now, I, I was looking kind of towards some of the teams at the bottom. And were you, um, you know, given how bad I think a lot of people think some of these teams at the bottom of the East are going to be, um, were you at all surprised at the fact that um, the number of wins was fairly high across the board? I mean, that you didn't have anybody um, lower than 27 and there were only a couple teams below 30? Or is that um, is that fairly standard just given kind of the way deviations work with this kind of a, a system? Yeah, I mean, a projection system is generally going to be pretty conservative in terms of, well, we know that there, you know, people will point out, oh, in the East, you don't have anyone projected to win 50 games. You don't think anyone in the East is going to win 50 games? Well, no, I mean, the odds are very strong that someone will win 50 games in the East. It's just that no individual team is projected as more likely than not to get to 50 games. So it's pretty uncommon other than, you know, the really extreme tanking situations to see teams that much lower than you know about 25 26 there's usually maybe one of those teams per year to not have any of them is a little unusual but uh not not stunningly so well and almost some of that's probably got to do with the fact that there's so many teams that are almost trying to do it right doesn't it kind of like um doesn't it almost isn't almost like a rise in like in a weird way like a rising tide situation like if there's so many bad teams that they're likely to all win a few games against each other instead of uh from the from the system standpoint, instead of uh, you know one team getting its doors blown off by just about everybody. Yeah, I mean, since schedule isn't factored in yet, since there is no schedule is yet, I I, I don't know that that's necessarily it. So much is just all of these teams having a little bit of talent. So you look at even someone like Atlanta, who has the lowest projection overall uh, in the RPM projections. Like you've still got an, a decent starter in Dennis Schroeder. You've got a couple of, you know, they re-signed Arsan Ilyasova, signed Dwayne Dedman. They've got some competent players in the starting lineup. And the other aspect is, of course, that we don't know which teams are going to start selling off players midseason right. or shutting guys down and look wholly different at that point. I, I know John Hollinger, before you know he went to the Grizzlies, tried to build in a projection, an adjustment for that. I, I haven't tried to do that as yet. Yeah, and I think, I think you know, obviously Hollinger... Uh, Hollinger's always was always a couple steps ahead, but I think I'm with you. I think at some point there, it's kind of like you mentioned that one year uh, with the Knicks. You know, even if even if your system is right, there's all there's so many variables once things start to try to take into account that I think it's kind of impossible to um, to game out whether a team is going to try to trade a certain player or not. Um, but it, it's funny you bring up Memphis because that's actually one team I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, not only because they're projected to be pretty bad this year. Uh, tied for 11th in the West uh, with only 34 wins, which is uh, certainly nothing anyone in Memphis will want to hear. Um, but more to the fact that, you know, it's kind of become a running joke that every year Memphis is projected to finish with several less wins than they do. Um, and and they always seem to outperform their differentials. And I, I just was curious, what is? do you have any idea why uh, the Grizzlies in particular um, – have always been a team that's kind of underperformed in from com- compared to where they end up in in models like these. Yeah, I mean it, it's actually not as consistent the last few years as you'd think. There was a stretch really the in the RPM uh, projections I've gone and back and recreated using the Shaney projected playing time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2010 through 2013, they really heavily outperformed uh, by a, an average of probably about seven and a half or eight wins per year. Wow. Then. 
in 2014, they were one and a half, a game and a half under. They actually had a really strong 51 and a half projection. 2015, the year they won 55, they were projected to win 53. So they were a little ahead, but not much. And then 2016, the year they collapsed because of injuries, they were for, projected for almost 47 and ended up because of the injuries winning 42. So it, it really wasn't you know until last year that in the last few years they've been significantly under-projected. Uh, it, as you noted, that's... So basically, when we do these projections, what I'm trying to do is project teams point differential and go from that to their record as mm-hmm. opposed to tr- predict the, project their record specifically. So if a team does outperform its point differential by winning a lot of close games or underperform it by losing a lot of close games, which is true of you know a few teams this year as well, then that's going to tend to you know be a case where maybe the team performs like like the projection says but the win total doesn't end up matching up right now that that would make sense if there if there's a team or two from from this system that that you will look at in a few months and and say that um they made you look silly this year is there is there a team or two that you're you're kind of worried about just that 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 might might come back to haunt you just in terms of uh the the system not giving you a, a result that you think is accurate? I, I would say Philly is certainly a possibility. Uh, Boston not being, you know, winning fewer games than last year, even though that also gets back to the point differential issue. I, I think there's a possibility there. And then maybe Charlotte, if things really implode for them. Oh, Charlotte's an interesting one. Um, yeah, I, I actually, I kind of thought that that might happen. I I, I mean, even though he's, um, even though he's kind of a, uh, a guy that people are sick of at this point. I mean, I thought them adding Dwight Howard for basically nothing, um, you know, swapping him in for, for Miles Plumlee, even with some of the chemistry issues that he's at places, that still seemed like a pretty big upgrade. So um, that didn't, that didn't entirely surprise me. And Charlotte, if I remember right, wasn't Charlotte a team that uh, was projected to be pretty good last year before things kind of went off the rails? Yeah, I think to be above 500 in, in, in the bottom half of the playoffs, and they're another team that, again, better point differential than their record. And they also went three and seventeen in the games that Cody Zeller missed last season. And right. that's, you know, where Dwight Howard immediately makes a big difference is they won't be, you know, uh, dead in the water anytime they don't have Zeller. No, that that's definitely true. I remember they were, um, I remember they were in uh, Oakland at at one point when Zeller was out. And I remember talking to Steve Clifford about it, and it, it is it was just remarkable to see um, how much of a difference uh, you know one guy like that can make. And, and to go back to your initial point about trying to factor in um, you know trades and different things, I mean, look at that, right? The guy misses, uh, you know, Cody Zeller's a good player, but he's also not a guy that you would look at as a you know anywhere close to an all star. Um, but the fact that he missed you know basically a month, um, you know, cap tank their season. You know, because if, if if he'd if he'd played seventy five games, Charlotte would have made the playoffs probably. Um, yep. And it, it it is it is pretty crazy how um, how one guy can can swing things like that. I was a little curious. Um, did you think that the Thunder would rate out better than they did um, with the acquisitions they made? Like you said, I know that um, I know that Patrick Patterson rates really well um, in in the system, and obviously, you know, swapping out Demontis Sabonis and. Victor Oladipo for Paul George seemed like a big win. Um, did you did you think they would end up higher than than forty nine and a half, or was that close to where you thought they would be? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I thought that they would be relatively in the same tier as Houston and San Antonio. I mean, they're only a couple ga- games behind San Antonio, but uh, Houston pretty substantially ahead of them. And I think a big factor there is RPM has them is the fourth best offense, but the sixteenth best defense. And I would be surprised given the defensive talent that they have. You know, even though the bench is pretty atrocious defensively, I would be surprised if they were worse than league average on defense. Well, and they were they were somewhere around tenth last year, weren't they? Yeah, that sounds right. I th- I mean, then- I, I I was actually you know I saw you mention that in your article. I was going to actually look it up because, um, like you said, when you when you add in uh, when you add in Paul George to a team that's already got Andre Robertson and Stephen Adams and, and Patterson's a solid defensive player. Um, you know, you certainly. Uh, you know, it's certainly easy to look at them and, and think that they're going to be a very good defensive team. Um, what to go back to to change subjects a little bit? You, you mentioned uh, your offseason grades, and you um, you, you go back and, and you know go through and grade and and analyze you know more of these transactions that happened in the summer um, than anybody I think in the business. 
Um, and you do a great job with them. What now that we've had a chance to kind of take a little bit of a breath after an insane few weeks uh, in our world, what um, what are some of the things that really stood out to you um, about the way this this free agency period played out? Um, I. You know, I think that it was an interesting free agency period because a lot of what went down was sort of moves that required other moves, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. So, for example, like Gordon Hayward choosing Boston instead of Utah. If he resigns with Utah, they've already resigned Joe Ingles. Their offseason's basically done at that point. And Boston, you know, pretty much stands pat. You know, if they've, they've got some cap space they can use, but maybe they even try to renegotiate and extend Isaiah Thomas or Avery Bradley or, is, you know, something like that. Instead, you know, him going to Boston not only forces them to trade Avery Bradley to create the cap space, then Utah's got all this money and they go out and shop in free agency and sign uh, a group of players, Cephalosha, Jerebko, and F.A. Udo. And there were a few situations like that where, you know, Houston's another one. If nothing had materialized, I think they probably would have brought back a relatively similar core. But lo and behold, Chris Paul is interested in coming and they pull off this blockbuster trade and then go out and fill out the rest of the roster with defensive minded role players. And there were a lot of situations like that where just, you know, I think the reason there was such move, so much movement this summer is because, you know, if a, one or two dominoes would have fallen differently, there could have been a lot less movement. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it is funny, um, you know, every every summer, uh you know, it does seem like, you know, this year even more than most, but every summer it does seem like there's a couple moves like that, that if it goes one way or the other, um, it, it, it can really impact uh, the way a lot of teams go. I mean, even you go back to last summer, right? I mean, if the Wizards had gotten Al Horford instead of the, the Celtics, um, you know, that was a situation where, you know, the Wizards then turn around, they signed seven guys because they couldn't to try to get some depth when they couldn't sign Horford. Then they ended up having to trade, uh, you know, dump Andrew Nicholson for a, with with a pick. You know, just a couple months later, because the contract didn't work out. Um, you know, it, it is always really interesting to go back and, and look at some of the ripple effects uh, to little deals like that. And you mentioned, I mean, that just Hayward's decision alone impacted several teams. You can even throw in there Miami. I mean, you look at, you know, if Miami had gotten him to come back or him to go there, you know, they probably wouldn't have gone and paid, you know, a bunch of money to the various guys that they did. Um, you know, because they, they went and signed several guys to, to eight-figure contracts to kind of fill out their roster when he he chose not to go there. Um, what what was your um, what was your take on and on just the general lack of um, interest on a lot of levels in older players? That to me was one of the really big uh, the big trend lines from this summer was that you look at guys like Kyle Lowry and Paul Millsap and. At this time last year, especially after the, sp- the spending craze last summer, we looked at them and said, well, those guys are going to get max deals next summer. And, you know, Kyle Lauer gets a three-year deal for $100 million, which is nothing to sneeze at, but it's half of what I think he thought he was going to get a year ago. And Paul Millsap got a two-year deal with a team option, uh, which I-, I think is far less than he would have ever guessed a year ago. Um, did, it- did any of that surprise you, or did you think that was kind of a natural evolution of where, um, where the cap was going? It surprised me. I mean, I think, you know, teams are definitely getting more conservative with some of those contracts, particularly and another Danny Lura favorite years and not dollars in yes. this case, because, you know, the dollar figures weren't that far off what I think Millsap and Lowry are expecting. But it's the years that really they got squeezed on quite considerably. And uh, it'll be interesting, as you guys discussed last week on the uh, Brian Windhorst's podcast, you know, how that affects Isaiah Thomas next summer when he's going to be, you know, in a relatively similar situation, uh, certainly younger than Millsap and a little younger than Lowry as well. But, you know, given the fact that he might age a little more quickly due to his height, teams are probably going to view him somewhat similarly. And I think the other issue that maybe comes into this is, you know, it's it's also an issue of who has the cap space. Because if all the cat space is held by rebuilding teams, then it doesn't make sense for Phoenix to go out and throw a lot of money at Paul Millsap. It doesn't necessarily make sense for Philly to go out and spend, throw a lot of money at Kyle Lowry, even though they might have done it had they not pulled off the Markel Fultz trade. Uh, and I think that you know the last few years have been unusual because we've seen all these good teams have a bunch of cap space. We might be moving back towards a period where the teams with the cap space are almost always younger. Yeah, no, that that's very true. Um, and it, it will be really interesting to see how that plays out because, you know, it's been, you know, it, it, it hasn't really been that long in terms of years, but in terms of NBA years, one year always feels like five and it's been, you know, four or five years since the, we really have had a, a fairly level cap environment. Um, you, know, you think when the, 
when the lockout ended, the salary cap, I think was $58 million. And now it's a hundred. Um, and you know, it's probably, it's probably going to be somewhere around a hundred now for a while, you know, it's go up some, but it's certainly not going to go up at the rapid rate. It wasn't, there won't be another spike anytime soon. Um, and, and it will be really interesting to see how some of these, uh, how some of these free agents, um, are treated because like you said, even, even some of these teams that are, that have younger guys, like look at Minnesota, right? Like if you have a good young team, but yes, they did go out and get Todd Gibson and Jeff Teague and some of these other guys, but they also, you know, those guys got two year deals, I think in part, because in a couple of years they plan on having, you know, if they, assuming they keep Andrew Wiggins and don't trade him, they have a max deal on the books for him and a max deal on the books for Carl Towns. And you're going to be paying those guys, you know, somewhere close to $60 million a year. Um, and if you're in a small market, that's going to be a really big pill to swallow if you're going to also try to go out and, and add players on the open market while those guys are cheap on top of it. Absolutely. I mean, it's an unusual time where, you know, for a while teams were benefiting from the fact that like the cap was going up faster than most of their contracts. So that's why, you know, they had this huge amount of space. And now, you know, I think first off, the cap may not go up even as much as the new 5% raises if you're signing another team's free agent. But certainly if you're a team that you know, like the Timberwolves who has to re-sign, extend your own guys, those raises that they're getting are swallowing up a, a huge part of the payroll you're going to have available. And that limits what else you can spend. Yeah, no, it's going to be, um, it's going to be, it's going to be really, really interesting. And, uh, and you mentioned it before. I mean, your, your fellow Seattle native, uh, Isaiah Thomas. I mean, I think, you know, he, he hasn't really backed down in the last couple of days from, the stuff he said recently about wanting a max deal. And, you know, like you said, we talked about it on the TBA pod last week. I mean, it is really going to be a really interesting uh, dance that the, the Celtics are going to play with him next year. Because I, as great as Isaiah was last year, they didn't have a guy like Gordon Hayward on the team to, to kind of take shots from him just throughout the course of the game. So he could kind of do whatever he wanted. And I, I feel like it's inevitable that his stats are going to come back down a little bit just, just by the presence of Hayward being there. And, um, it, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to me what, what he, his market looks like next, next summer, because, you know, not only is he an older player and kind of a unique fit, but again, it's, it, it, there's just, there's just only so many teams that need a point guard. Um, and you know, or, one of those teams going to have a max contract space and want to sign him. It's it just, to me, it'll be, it'll be really, really interesting to see, you know, where that, where that whole negotiation winds up and what number he ends up getting, whether it's in Boston or somewhere else. Yeah. And you need, you know, you, even though Boston will probably have great interest in re-signing because of the fact that they didn't add a point guard this year, you know, you still need that other suitor there to drive up the market. Yeah. And that, I mean, you saw that it's with both Lowry and Millsap, right? I mean, Kyle Lowry basically had no other offer, um, you know, and, and Toronto, I think took care of him and, you know, gave him a fair, you know, three-year market deal. But, um, but you look at, like you look at Millsap, I mean, Millsap clearly didn't have another offer if he was taking a team option from Denver. Um, I mean, that to me, I, I was pretty convinced that Millsap was going to sign a four-year max somewhere this summer. It was going to be a year or two, just going to be a terrible contract. And now, I mean, that that was that was about as good a contract as, as Denver could have hoped to sign this summer. Now you've got him for two years. And if he does start to decline, you can just opt out of the final year. And, and you know, and then it's not then it's not nearly as painful as paying him four years and 145 million or whatever it was going to be, which I was sure he was going to get. Not, you know, like I said, just a couple of months ago, which allows them to manage their own situation with Nikola Jokic going to get max in all likelihood, either next summer or the year after. Well, it isn't all oh, right. Cause he, um, he's one of those guys that's got the fourth year team option, right? So they can either op, have him opt out and be uh, restricted or keep him another year and be unrestricted. Yep. How how would you generally play those situations, or does that go does that go um, case by case? Because I, I always there there have been some there's been a few interesting decisions along those lines in recent years. Like I think uh, and I think in most cases the team has opted to keep the guy on the cheaper contract. The one time because I remember that's what the the Pacers did with Lance. I know that that's what the Sixers are doing now with Covington. I remember the one time the team didn't do that for, for sure was when uh, the Rockets you know declined. Uh, Parsons option to make him restricted, and then he went and signed a contract with Dallas anyway. Yeah, I mean, first off, you have to be a pretty good player to make it, you know, to the point where there's a significant risk of, you know, if you lose it, leave, it's going to be a major problem. Like, you know, 
the the Hornets ended up or the uh, Pacers rather ended up letting Lane Stevenson go as an unrestricted free agent had every opportunity to pay him (laughs) what he wanted and and chose not to and Houston of course you know they their decision to make Parsons restricted seemed probably somewhat tied to the fact that they had signed fellow Dan Fegan clients Dwight Howard this summer before no question I don't think there's any question that's true but Jokic is such like the centerpiece of their rebuilding efforts that I don't think you take any risk with him, and I think you would probably make him restricted no matter what. Yeah, feels like that that feels like it's a way to go for me, right? You you opt out after that, you have him, you you decline that third year option, and you just lock him up. Um, I mean that that just seems like that seems like the obvious way to go. Now they're a team. Uh, your system last year rated them. I think you had them ninth, right, in winning forty games, or did you have them eighth? I was trying to remember where you had them. I know you had them higher than people initially projected because they were um, a lot of people thought they were going to be terrible last year. But you had them you had them on the at least the border of making the playoffs. Right. Yeah, I think it might have been eighth. But, yeah, I think it was about 41 wins and they ended up winning 40. Right. I, I knew they were eighth or ninth. I, was, I just knew that they were higher than most people. And now and they're a team like I, I thought that I think they're going to be right in the range, you know, 47, 48 wins. You haven't projected at 47 uh, with the addition of Millsap and some of the growth of their other guys. Did Was that a number that you you thought was pretty um, was about where you thought it would be for Denver? Yeah, that was about exactly where I was expecting them, I would say. Yeah, that's that's what I was thinking, too. Um, all right. Well, before we wrap up, uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, my friend Kevin is a very proud uh, Seattle resident. Uh, and uh, anybody who listens to this podcast, I would think, would know that. Um, but the, this, the, the hopes of getting a team back in Seattle was uh, recently in the news when um, Adam Silver doing, uh, I believe, a podcast with C.J. McCollum or some kind of interview for the Players' Tribune uh, said in, and I thought, the most uh, open terms in a while that uh, relocate, you know, that not relocation, that expansion uh, I believe you said, I believe he used the word inevitable. I'm sure Kevin has the wording, uh, memorized at this point, but, um, and, and undoubtedly that if, if they, if the league, whenever the league does expand, Seattle will be, uh, one of the cities, if, if not the only city that's added. So uh, I guess from, from your standpoint, Kevin, as somebody who has followed the entire, uh, saga of the Sonics leaving, um, and now, you know, potentially at some point coming back, um, you know, certainly hopefully soon. Uh, kind of what is the state of uh, state of affairs in Seattle at this point? And are you was any of that uh, was any of what he said led you to be more optimistic about it happening sooner rather than later? Or are you still taking a rather uh, cautious tone? I'm definitely still taking a cautious tone. I mean, you know, I, I don't think it was dramatically different what he said from what he said at the NBA finals, uh, said something about, you know, at some point we're going to expand, uh, inevitable, I guess is a little bit stronger than that. But in, in both cases, you know, the, the time frame we're talking about is almost certainly not within the next five years. And I'm not clear how much longer than that it might be. Uh, you know, I, David Aldridge, uh, on NBA.com last week had a good follow-up where he talked to a variety of different owners off the record about this. And, you know, their consensus was, look, you know, as much as we like Seattle as a market, we can't start talking about expansion until we've got 30 teams stabilized and making money, which, you know, even after the the, the uh, CBA win for the owners in 2011, still apparently is not, the, and even with the, uh, the TV deal escalating it is, still apparently is not the case. So even though there aren't any teams that, you know, really look to be in any imminent danger at this point after, you know, Milwaukee got their new arena, which is currently under construction, and of mm-hmm. course, Sacramento after nearly moving to Seattle, uh, got their new arena that opened up last year. But the other aspect of it is Seattle still needs to continue to go through the process of getting ready for a team when one is available, either through relocation or expansion. And that process is still playing out right now. The Seattle City Council has before it both a proposal from the Oakview Group, uh, which includes Madison Square Garden and Live Nation, Nation is uh, the the money behind it to renovate Key Arena into an NBA slash NHL arena and bring now, it Key to Ar- modern standards. Now, Key, I would you you already jumped into my next question, so let me back up just for a second. So, uh, Key Arena, for those of you who don't know, is where the Sonics used to play, um, and is the is the the at least from this group standpoint, the potential future home of the Sonics whenever they come back. 
Yeah, and that's competing against the proposal that has been on the table by a group led by Chris Hansen, the group that bought the Kings and tried to move them to Seattle to build an arena just south of where CenturyLink Field and Safeco Field are, south of downtown in Seattle. And they have refiled for the street vacation that they were denied last year, 5-4, by the city council. But now they're coming at it. Previously, the uh, the memorandum of understanding they had struck with the city called for $200 million in in public financing uh, to help cover the cost of building the arena. Now they have changed the plan and are asking for no public financing, which they hope will you know, give them a chance to be competitive with this key arena renovation proposal. And you know, we should have a decision between those two by the end of the year. They can't vote on the key arena proposal until the deal with the Hanson Group expires, which will be at the beginning of December. And what, in your opinion, uh, is the, um, as somebody who's studied this closer than maybe even some of the people on the council involved in the voting, uh, <laughs> is there, um, which is not a knock on the people on the council, just that uh, KP is all over this whole, has been all over this for years now. Um, do, you, do you have an opinion either way on um, what is the, the more feasible path to uh, getting a team back there in terms of which one is more viable since uh, obviously you know, regardless, I know that your hope as a, you know, a, a lifelong Seattle NBA fan is that there's a, uh, there's a team there again at some point. Yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, either one of those certainly can be viable. And I, my, my preference is just for whichever one gets the NBA here. I, I think the one legitimate concern that fans in Seattle have with the Oakview plan is because of the fact that it's involving a third party operator of the arena is that going? Is there going to be enough financial incentive for an NBA ownership group if they're not also invested in the arena? Well, as they would have, have the opportunity to do it with the the Hanson Group. Well, you also have to factor in. I think if you're a Seattle fan, right, that um, the Garden the, is it whether it's the Garden or Dolan personally it has a stake in that group. Um, I, I believe it's the Garden Company. Um, right. That that's gotta. I, I would think that would at least have to be a concern that part of the investing group would be another NBA team, which is not going to really have an interest in. Uh, and I, I don't even think they could. Uh, I, I'm not even exactly sure what the what the rules would be in terms of that being able to be involved with that if an NBA team tried to come to, to Key Arena. I mean, maybe it would maybe it wouldn't be a problem at all. And I'm, I'm just making that up. But it does seem like it would potentially be uh, uh, a thorn in, in the side of trying to get a team back if that if that plan does wind up working out. Yeah, I mean, they they could not be directly invested in the team. I, I would have to look into this Further, I think you know the same people could invest in the arena and then also invest in the team, and that's sort of what what they've tried to do on the NHL side, where they have uh, unveiled David Bonderman and uh, and the let's see why can't I remember the name of the producer off uh, the top of my head here? Um, some great some great podcasts right now. Um, uh-huh. I'll fill in while you're looking it up. Um, it, it it has been it has been interesting from afar. You know, I, you and I have talked about this a lot. It has been interesting from afar to uh, kind of watch this whole story play out because, you know, I mean, like you said, you know, the Hanson group has been involved going all the way back to, you know, 2011 uh, when and 12 when this whole uh, when the whole deal with the Kings came up in the first place. And they, you know, they they were almost nearly moved to Seattle before they were stopped at the last second. Um, And it, it has been interesting to see now. Uh, you know, this, this key, this key arena proposal come up and now you have, you know, these two competing arena plans to try to get, get an arena done that will, that will make the, the a viable location for an NBA team to get back there. Yeah. Uh, Jerry Bruckheimer is the producer. Ah, I was that's thinking. right. Yeah. Who's also right. involved with their NHL ownership group? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, though, that is, I think, in some coming in late is a little bit of an advantage because you know they've been able to play off of Hanson's history. You know, after that that uh, Sacramento move was voted in the sale of the team, they didn't actually vote on the move, just on the sale of the team. After that was voted down. He did fund some anti-arena efforts in Sacramento, and certainly the NBA did not look kindly on that. I, I don't think that that's going to be an impediment to, you know, Hanson being part of an NBA ownership group. But it certainly is something that uh, his opponents have been able, able to use against him. Yeah, no, that that's definitely true. And uh, you know, look, I mean, it's, this is all this is all um, you know. None of this is all necessarily uh, you know. The, the cleanest deal, right? I mean, if you go back to 
that Sacramento situation. I mean, there was all kinds of, of stuff going on there. I mean, where, you know, where I think you can make a pretty good case that, you know, the best situation for the league would have been for, you know, the Seattle group to win that bid. Uh, but the league wanted to keep a team in Sacramento. And so they did uh, just as a few years before, uh, you know, it would have been better for the league to stay in Seattle in the first place. And it went to Oklahoma city because that was what the league wanted at the time. So it's not, um, you know, uh, this, this stuff doesn't always necessarily break down cleanly along the lines of, well, this is the thing that makes the most sense in the broader scope. It's what, it's what makes sense in the moment uh, to the people involved, which obviously as someone who, you know, just would like to have a team back there, I'm sure has got to be uh, a frustrating thing to deal with from your end. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing we've learned certainly is look, the NBA has, has, made its lesson if they wanted to show other cities that look you better step up in terms of a new arena or you're going to lose your team that message has been delivered uh in sacramento at the last minute as you said and then milwaukee uh local government has worked with new ownership groups to build arenas in those places and we've seen in seattle where you know people are like okay the team moved we're going to get another team back we've seen how difficult it is it's a lot easier to get it to it's a lot easier to lose a team than it is to get a new one yeah that's definitely true i mean if you look around the league now i mean you can only i mean i, I think you could say that new orleans is a potential candidate at some point to relocate um but i mean outside of there i mean i guess maybe minnesota maybe Memphis. I mean, it, there's really not, there's not a lot of teams that are, are real candidates to move anytime soon, if at all now, um, which to your point, you know, obviously makes it tough uh, to get a team there short of expansion. And, you know, like you, I, I think expansion is going to happen, but I think you're, I think as usual, you're at, your timeline's pretty accurate in that you're probably talking a longer time range than five years. So, you know, at that point you're, you know, maybe you're coming up on two decades before, there's a team back in Seattle, which I think if you'd gone back to 2008, uh, certainly wasn't the kind of time frame that uh, a lot of people there were expecting when the Sonics left in the first place. Yeah, I got uh, I got together with some former Sonics coworkers over the weekend, uh, one of their birthday, and we were all marveling at the fact, amazed at the fact that it's almost been a decade now. It's crazy. I was just thinking about it now when we were talking, and it's it's nine years ago this summer. Um, it, it does it, it does it feel like it's that long? for you at this point or does it feel longer <laughs> um, yeah I mean, it's one of those things where you sort of get used to it's the new normal now is to not have a team right in many ways yeah no that's uh that that's that's really very true well i certainly as as both a friend of yours and someone who enjoys the pacific northwest i would uh i would love nothing more oh actually that's what i wanted to ask you um do you think one one thing that comes up because you know, i get this question a lot even if i'm just talking to my friends like hey do you think you know, you think Seattle might get a team or do you think there might be expansion again sometime soon? Because everybody always likes the idea of expansion, right? Especially you had the uh, the, the new hockey team in the Las Vegas, whatever they're the Golden Knights or some ridiculous name uh, in, in the NHL. And they had this crazy expansion draft. And so, you know, there are people, you know, I had friends of mine like, man, could the NBA expand? That, that would be so cool if there was an expansion draft like that in basketball. Um is part of the do you think that it could end up being a hindrance for Seattle in the long run um, as they try to uh, get a team via expansion that um, at least on as it stands right now, it's hard to find an obvious um, second city to go with it? Not that the league has a minute odd number of teams before it has, but um, I, I would think it would probably be an easier sell if you could definitely bring in two teams at the same time and keep it even. And um, I I do, I do struggle to come up with a second city that that's truly viable and makes a lot of sense besides Seattle being the clear, obvious one that deserves to and and should have a team already. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it it certainly doesn't help. Uh, It'll be interesting to see if, as I'm sure the league continues to study this, if one of those markets, you know, sort of comes to the fore, whether it's, you know, potentially someplace like Mexico City, which I know that, uh, you know, baseball Rob Manfred has talked about expanding there. And Adam's actually mentioned that, too. Yeah, I, I think that came up, expanding outside the U.S. came up at the NBA Africa game over the weekend where he's he uh, had a similar comments about expansion to what he had told C.J. McCollum. Yeah. So, yeah, if something like that starts to become a more obvious location, then maybe it does help the case. Yeah, no, it, it'll certainly be uh, it, it'll certainly be interesting. Well, thanks. Thanks again for the time, man. Do you um, are you 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 said your your workload is slowing down. Are you actually taking a vacation or are you just going to hang out in the Pacific Northwest? <laughs> 
Yeah, just gonna hang out around here for a little while. Uh, been been traveling a fair bit lately, but uh, nothing planned for a, another month and a half or so here. Just until just until you start uh, tailgating for Huskies games. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's the next trip as I'm going to see you at Colorado. Oh, there you go. So, what is yeah. the um, before we go? What is the what is the preseason prediction on the uh, on the Huskies football team? Kevin, uh, season ticket holder for the Washington Huskies. Uh, Obviously, you had a great year last year. What is the uh, what is is the expectation that they're they're going to be near the top of the Pac-12 again? Yeah, I mean num- number seven in the preseason polls and the fav- preseason favorites in the Pac-12 North. I mean they go to Stanford this year, which is probably going to be their their single most important game in terms of getting to the Pac-12 championship, where USC will uh, likely be awaiting. Although we probably would have thought that this time a year ago, and, and Colorado ended up surprising and winning the South. Uh, lost a lot of talent on defense, but they did that after Chris Peterson's first year at, at UW and managed to replace it with guys who ended up being equally effective. So, you know, I think a lot of confidence that they can replace those guys internally. And then offensively, pretty much everyone but John Ross is coming back. So, you know, excitement about what Jake Browning can do with another year of experience under his belt. There you go. There's some college basketball in the pot or college football in the pot. And actually, it's funny. I was at, uh, I was at an event today, and I'll, I'll be at the, the <laughs> Steph Curry Select Game tomorrow. So I'm Michael Porter there, who was supposed to play uh, for the Huskies uh, this this winter, uh, and would have potentially been, you know, yet another uh, top, you know, top draft pick to play uh, play there before Lorenzo Romar got let go. Um, and now Mike Hopkins is a coach, so it should be an interesting interesting few months of uh, of Husky sports for you now. See what yeah, happens. Yeah. Every time Michael Porter has a good game, I know I'm going to get tweets about it. I just already know. I'm, I'm prepared for it. Well, all right, Kevin. Thanks again for the time, man. And uh, enjoy your well-deserved downtime. Always a pleasure. All right. Thanks again to Kevin for coming on the podcast. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, at Pelton. Uh, he's, he's a great follow. He churns out so much work. Uh, we, joke, we jokingly call him the machine. Uh, friends of his, including me. Um, even he's a, just does great work, really interesting stuff. He's a super nice guy. Um, does chats every week on ESPN.com still, I believe he does anyway. He was one of the last people to do him. I think he still does. Uh, just a, a, a great follow and a, a really interesting NBA voice. So, so go follow him on Twitter. Uh, as for me, you can follow me on Twitter at Tim Bontemps. You can follow me on Facebook at Tim Bontemps NBA. Please find my work in the pages of the Washington Post and on our website at WashingtonPost.com slash sports. Please subscribe to the Monday Morning Post Up, my weekly NBA newsletter. This week wrote about Doc Rivers and his interesting job situation in the wake of leaving uh, his title of president of basketball operations with the Los Angeles Clippers, remaining head coach, uh, but losing that title uh, puts him in an interesting situation moving forward. And, and that's something that's going to be one of the dominant storylines of next season. As much as the, the Clippers have tried to, to brush it off as not being a big deal, um, there's, there's no question that's going to be a big story. And so I wrote about that for today. I also had some links to other articles. Uh, I think you got, if anybody who's a big basketball fan will enjoy, will enjoy the, the newsletter. So hopefully you'll subscribe to do so. Go to wapo.st slash newsletter. That's wapo.st slash newsletter. Postup newsletter, all one word. Also have links to my articles from the past week, articles from other writers. Uh, so please, please go check that out. Um, you can uh, please go find the podcast on, on iTunes and Stitcher, wherever else you, you find them, and give us a five-star rating and review. really helps the podcast when you do that. Thank you for doing it in advance. Thank you to Glenn Yoder and the Western States for the terrific theme music for the podcast. Please go find their music online and buy it. They are great. Glenn is our digital editor in sports at The Post. He's a good friend of mine, huge NBA fan, uh, so go support him and his work. Uh, thanks again to everybody for listening. Uh, should have a podcast again on Friday. Going to try to do a couple of week here uh, the next few weeks as we – um, we try to keep you entertained for the next few months until the season starts. Um, should be have the schedule coming out, you know, either later this week or most likely sometime next week to talk about that. Um, got the training camps a little only only a little more than a month away, probably about six weeks away from uh, the Warriors starting up before they go to China. So they'll be one of the first teams to get going, and then we'll be right back into preseason, and, and the next season will start. So uh, there'll be plenty to talk about. So. Thanks again to everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you all again soon.